Hey, and welcome to another episode of Upstream, a podcast hosted by me, Minnow Park, and my good friend, David Cho, where we talk about what it means to go against the current and live a more generous, curious, and sometimes difficult creative life. This week, we are talking about something I've been feeling ever since we launched the first episode a few weeks ago, and that's the imposter syndrome. It's that convincing voice in my head yelling, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? You're going to suck at this, so don't even try. And although we don't offer any magic pills to rid us of the syndrome, we do take an honest look at it. We talk about recognizing our own inherent value and outnumbering the imposter syndrome by having a community around us. So join us as we resist our own imposters and try to encourage one another to fight the good fight. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Upstream Podcast. I am here with my good friend David Cho. Say hi. Hi everyone. And this podcast is about talking about things that may be hard to talk about, but it's important to challenge ourselves and to think about issues and ideas that normally isn't comfortable to talk about. That was a horrible intro. (laughs) (laughs) But it's all right. And that feeds into me saying that it was a horrible intro feeds into the subject we want to talk about today, which is the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And... I think that was a horrible intro because part of me feels, what am I doing saying an intro to a podcast? And who am I to be starting an intro for anything? And Mm. that is what, that is the imposter syndrome of how it feels. But how do you, how would you define what the imposter syndrome is for you, Dave? What, What does that mean to you when you hear that phrase? I think imposter syndrome is this concept around people feeling that they are participating in activities or a job or a process that they don't belong necessarily in or they feel as though people might find out they're not as qualified as they think they are. I think that's the easiest way for me I that I understand it, at least. That, I, I like that definition, and I think... What I would add to that would be, it's usually around something that's worthwhile, Hmm. something that is challenging and something you have a passion about, but for you to do it means the concept and idea of of failure and of people seeing that happen. Mm -hmm. And I think the imposter syndrome is sort of there as protection, right? It's sort of a self protecting mechanism saying you don't want to do that right because it's going to lead to your demise i think i think it's interesting i feel like after we decided that this was today's topic you i started to notice imposter syndrome you know like when are when is it happening to me and i i realized especially in the creative space like when you do creative work for a living This Mm. idea of imposter syndrome is almost um, as normal as breathing, you know? And I found myself having this kind of idea around there being two options when it comes to imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. One, and, and they both require acknowledging it and managing it, right? So I feel like there's, there's basically two paths you can take and if you kind of go the extreme on either path Mm -hmm. the scales kind of tip 
you know mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so one is like going the 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 direction on the or the spectrum of being very scared overly timid basically becoming a doormat you present as a doormat you let people walk all over you because you're unsure about your ideas you, you know you don't really know if what you're saying has validity you don't trust yourself basically yeah right? yeah <clears throat> the other end of that spectrum is you present overly confident without necessarily the credibility to be that confident you don't have the experience or the data or the backing right and so mm-hmm. i found you that overcompensate right exactly i found that the th- funny thing about both ends is that they're extremely apparent to everybody else in the room you know which is maybe the hmm. single worst outcome of imposter syndrome because you're already thinking you're already insecure are people cognizant of how i'm feeling right now and it's it's funny mm-hmm. that it's really in these two ends of the spectrum where people are cognizant kind of everywhere in the middle space is where you are just kind of being a normal person and it's funny i was thinking about like what are some unique metaphors mm-hmm. i don't know if you've ever done horse riding i used to take horseback riding lessons when i was a kid for whatever reason again i'm from new york city <laughs> Mr. Hawaii. I was thinking upstate New York. Upstate New York, maybe? I don't know. So I used to take horseback riding lessons as a kid. It was um, in a ranch field near my my parents' house. And I remember this one time. (laughs) We were, you know, we had learned. We basically get on a horse and you first learn how to, like, walk. You you learn, you know, basic commands, stop, go, etc. And then Mm -hmm. one day we advanced, my sister and I. We advance to the trot. And what happens in the trot is like it's somewhere in between a walk and a and a run, right? So you're Um, bouncing. It's a lot of bouncing. A lot of bouncing. Got it. Okay. But it's almost like the first time you get a stereo system and you don't really know what the volume setting is at. You turn it up and it's way too loud. It's and that was so basically I was told by the instructor tell the horse to trot you do it by you know hitting it twice on the side and hitting the reins once or something like that and i don't know what i did i was maybe i was too forceful with it it began to run you know like close to a gallop and i almost like flipped off the horse oh man how old were you i was like 11 or 12 i was not even that small right i was kind of a big kid and it was like (laughs) so terribly frightening and so the reason i connect imposter syndrome to riding a horse is that it it's Really, to enjoy creative life, you're going to have to manage imposter syndrome. To mm. enjoy riding a horse, you're going to have to learn control and respect. You mm. you have to control how you manage your own anxiety around not necessarily being where you're at. But you also have to respect the fact that that anxiety is probably what contributes to good work. Right, you second guessing yourself in the process leads you to finding mistakes or refining things or finding new ways to think about things. Right, all of these things, like that combination, leads to I think like a joyful ride. I love that. So I think that's that's my whole process or thinking behind it. I'm not definitely not where I'm at today, but yeah. So rather than avoiding it, you're embracing it, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than avoiding the imposter syndrome or making up for it, either by overcompensating or undercompensating you are embracing the tension of what's happening so is your would you say your default when it comes to new 
kind of creative daunting opportunities is to cower a little bit at it or to like overcompensate given the spectrum that we talked about earlier i think it's it's to cower i think it's for me to drag my feet a lot on it but i also say that knowing that i've been freelancing and i've been doing things that are to other people risky Mm. and it might feel like whoa that's what you did Mm -hmm. and i think what i would want to say in terms of if anyone's listening and they sort of feel that they are overcompensating or undercompensating the times in my life where i was able to embrace the imposter syndrome was when i did it with a community of people Hmm. i have one friend my friend albert who six months before started photography than i did Mm -hmm. And I went to him for my portfolio to ask for his advice. I, you know, talked with him and and having him there as a friend and sort of helping and and being able to talk about it really, it outnumbered the imposter syndrome that way, you know, and Mm -hmm. my wife and she's a freelancer too. And the conversations that we have, we can outnumber our own imposter syndromes, right? I could outnumber her, she could outnumber mine. And this podcast <laughs> if mm-hmm. i did, if i'm talking to myself on a screen we wouldn't have gone anywhere <laughs> right mm-hmm. but because i'm talking to you and we're doing it together it's the same thing and this business coach is the same way and i think community is such a great way to battle that and talk about it together yeah what would you but, say to all the people out there like especially people like me who are still in corporate environments where they really feel just alone there's they don't mm-hmm. feel like they can necessarily trust anyone they don't have any allies or community in those spaces to kind within of their jobs, you mean? within their jobs to really kind of talk through these things in real time, you know, cause like, for instance, we're in a, especially in the client services business, we're always entering new rooms. Like th- I think that's really the easiest way to describe the businesses, mm-hmm. whether you're pitching, you know, new, new business, you're entering mm-hmm. a brand new office, a new group of people, a new culture, a new set of expectations, you know, whether you're, you know, thinking about a new problem for an existing clients, all of these new rooms that you enter. And it's like constant, Mm. like, do I belong here? Mm. Is there, is, is, was my last idea, my best idea, my only idea, Mm. you know? And it's like, they, they go, come and go so fast that is there even time to process and who can I process with? Like, how would you, how would you think about that? I think my best attempt at an answer would be that an imposter syndrome and feeling that way has rarely to do with the task at hand. Mm. It has a lot to do with who you think you are, what you feel you bring to the table. Yeah. I think you entering that room already says that you have the expertise. It's you realizing what that looks like. And I think a lot of times we want to look at it from like-minded people and and having people in the trenches is of course important having people there that understand what's going on but i think having a group of friends having um, a community that helps ground you and helps encourage you as a person as a human being that also says how you are in that room and what happens in that room doesn't define who you are that's good yeah, I don't know. If if a person's in a place where they feel alone and they feel like their job is sort of against them, having a community outside of that that tells them they are more than that yeah. and helps build a foundation of identity for them, I think is I think I'll lean on that part of the community. Yeah, there's a there's a basically an idea there around 
some inherent intrinsic value. I think people, what the problem, main problem with this, this kind of imposter syndrome is that people are entering spaces where they feel the need to prove themselves without first accepting their own value. No, oh, that's great. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I, and I realized that people are looking to certain, you know, moments or triggers to, to let themselves know that they are valuable. So, for the for most people right after college if they take the traditional route is you get a job offer mm-hmm. your first job offer whatever it is wherever it is kind of signals your kind of state of value right mm. and then they're waiting for the next one probably a promotion or a bonus or a raise or if the company sucks a new offer you know and you kind of just if you don't really take the time to reflect and deconstruct these things you start to realize you've lived for 10 years and what you've all you've done is jump from place to place person to person looking for that value you know and I, and what i like to kind of tell myself and other people is if someone gave you a job they saw something in you hmm. right like think about it this is like a very competitive marketplace there's a lot of talented people out there they chose you why did they choose you did they choose hmm. you at random you know they just have no one to pick from that's not true either so i think it's i think you know this this idea of imposter syndrome really centers around do you even know who you are my journey with that was i very much categorized myself as good parts of myself and bad parts of myself yeah good emotion bad emotion right good traits bad traits right and so only think or only do the good traits and the bad traits just throw them under the rug and they'll hopefully disappear (laughs) but they don't they fester and they multiply and they're still there Mm -hmm. but i only focus on the good parts of it and doing that made me only understand half of who i was Mm, that's true i only measured up to half of who i was right because no matter how much good i did quote-unquote good and to say the, cate- it, the categories are false. It sh- you shouldn't categorize yourself as good or bad. The parts of you, you are who you are. That's right. But because I only focused on half or whatever that percentage was, I didn't mm. know who I was mm. as a person. Sure. And therefore, if I don't know who I am as a person, how do I value what that person looks like? Mm. And a lot of what I had to do was reframe and say, you don't have good emotions and bad emotions. You have emotions that signal something. Mm-hmm. And some of them, some of those emotions are good. Some of those emotions are positive. Some of them are negative. But, that, right. but there is no value judgment on what that looks like. That's really interesting. When you think about shame or guilt or failure, how right. do you invite that in and say, hey, I see that. What are you signaling? Mm-hmm. What can I learn and grow from it? And mm-hmm. be able to sit with it. And then sitting with something that was negative, I came out of that saying, oh, there's something about me that I understand. And this Mm. is part of me that's growing. And if this is part of me that's improving and it's a part of me that's getting better, I could honor that. Yeah, that's really good. What word would you use to describe that inherent value you have that, that will enable you to kind of explore this new business path? EQ, mm. people skills. Mm-hmm. So like empathy and connectedness. Yeah, I would say empathy is super hard. I think empathy is still something I'm learning, but I definitely have 
EQ, an emotional quotient that's bigger than my intelligent quotient. <laughs> and I think I can navigate conversations and, and talks with people. I think that I can, I can really, I can do that part of it. And yeah. And I think it's so interesting that like the way that you just talked about you overcoming this imposter syndrome was just swallowing this very small granular value that you mm. know is true about yourself, mm. which is... EQ, which is just being mm. able to connect and understand people. Mm. And I think that that's often that it, it sounds so trivial and stupid, almost too easy. But I think that most people are looking for these big, meaty, chunky answers when it comes to their imposter syndrome. Like, in order for me to overcome my imposter syndrome, I need to learn X or I need to be why I need to get on this stage or get this job or this title. But I think to your point, what I've seen in my own life is it really comes down to what is that, that really kind of, you know, almost molecular truth about yourself that you couldn't erase even if you tried, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for me in, in a lot of these rooms is, yeah, I'm curious. I, I think for me, it's this idea that I notice and I'm just genuinely curious, right? Those two things combined make it so that what may seem like just a challenge coming from someone else's mouth is a genuine question from me, Mm. right? So, you know, know, a CEO might be presenting his business or her business case to, to me and saying, these are what we've done. This is why we've done it this way. These are our results. This is our kind of vision for the future. And I'll ask, you know, something simple like, why? Why did you guys do it like that for so long? And, you know, if you ask it with a certain attitude or, you know, intonation, it sounds a little punkish. (laughs) You can sound kind of, you know, rude. But I think for me, I'm just able to insert myself in so many conversations with a simple why. Hmm. And it's it's gotten me so far because at the end of the day, it's not because I want to be seen as a inquisitive, challenging person, as much as that's my almost my natural inclination, you know. And it's like I don't think any one of us are taught your kind of natural inclinations are probably your strength, right? You know, and it, no right. one is really taught how to hone those things. That's great. And I think there's sections of academia that try to figure out why people succeed or how they succeed. And I think you can understand that, but I don't think you can fully answer the question that you posed of how to do it without some evidence. And I yeah. think it just means you got to try and do something. That's right. Right. And then take that evidence and put that against what it is that you were doing. Mm-hmm. And for me to even make that pitch to uh, potential couples and say, if you are with me and you're comfortable with me, we'll get great photos. I wasn't able to say that until maybe halfway into my wedding career. Mm-hmm. It took five years of trying this and trying that mm-hmm. and doing that and, and, and reflecting on it and realizing what it is that I can do and, yeah. and what is the value that I bring. And it took that amount of time to happen. And so a part of it is just it is just doing it and then having a way for you to check in with yourself and seeing what that looks like and this sort of iterative process of what that looks like. And I mean, for you, how did you deal with it? Like you're, you're sitting in front of your computer having to come up with four or five bullet points of recommendations to give a brand and say, hey, if you guys do this, 
you are going to have X, Y, and Z happen, right? Like that's yeah. some, that's sometimes the pitch, right? And uh-huh. so <laughs> what does that process look like? What was that in the beginning when you had to do that? I think it's so funny you asked because I think I'll, I, and this wasn't really true for me because I had just such a, you know, uncommon, I guess, journey into this this career. But uh-huh. I would say a lot, what I see a lot of like younger people doing or, you know, not younger, but newer people in the field doing is they rely on like data. They'll look mm. at research studies and data point after data point to try to sell in something that they feel. Validate it. Yeah, validate a gut instinct or something. And sometimes it works. You know, like some certain clients you need that. But when what I think really makes good for good creative output, whether it be a movie or a commercial or a, you know, whatever it might be, is not 85% of people said that they feel this way in this situation. It's right. really the articulation of that original gut feeling, hmm. you know? And so for me, I've realized over the years that, yeah, it's important to cover your ass with data, but what's even more important is to be able to communicate the like the feeling behind your instinct, right, around a certain situation. So I can give you an example. It's like, I was working on a uh, a fast casual restaurant brand that was mm-hmm. rolling out. They they started in the Southwest um, and they're rolling out from nine to 42 locations across the US Whoa. in uh, in two years. They were partially wow. sold to the Cheesecake Factory and okay. the, the, the growth period was for the full full sale essentially. And so I remember, you know, part of my work is just like, it's like part investigative journalism, part ethnography. And so I would, you know, just go to the locations that existed. I did like a tour of California, Phoenix, where else? And, you know, my other teammates are like Texas and stuff like that. But I was focused on California and I went to their Del Mar location. Del Mar is the richest zip. It, it contains the richest zip code in the U.S., Oh, wow. And so they were serving, you know, very, like Tony Robbins lives there. He has a house there. (laughs) And so, you know, that's the type of people it is. And so I walked into one of these places and there was an older woman there. She was probably like, I don't know, in her 60s, maybe even 70s. She was Mm -hmm. wearing up and down Lululemon, (laughs) Louis Vuitton bag, purse. And all she had in her hand was a lemonade. And I asked her, why do you come here? Why are you here today? And yeah. she said, oh, you know, it's funny. I never eat here. All I do is get a lemonade. I Actually, I just come in here because I like how it feels. I mean, I know it's to some degree constructed and not necessarily quote unquote authentic, but it still makes me happy to be here. So I just come by and grab a lemonade and leave. And I realized to me, it's so funny that my line of work, especially branding and design and marketing, we're my clients, myself even, we're just trying to construct these experiences or communications or whatever that feel genuine. And we think the customer can't see through it. The customer, there's there's no way. And I think it's really rare when you come face to face with the fact that everybody sees through it Mm. and yet you can still connect, Mm. right? So what does that mean? And, you know, for so basically, so for that brand, I came up with this line that was called, quote, habitual happiness. How do we make happiness a choice and a habit, right? Because at the end of the day, even if you know something is contrived, 
or shitty and not as authentic as it could be if it still makes yeah. you happy does that does that make it any less genuine happiness like yeah. all of disney world is contrived engineered and designed does yeah. that does that you know what does that say about the feelings of happiness that the people experience there does mm. it make it any less true i mean i don't mm. know right and so for for me i'm starting to realize that okay you can be intentional about a lot of things that you create or end up developing and know that people might see your fingerprints on it. And yet, despite those things, maybe in spite of those things, connect with them anyway. I think mm-hmm. if you do it genuinely to serve somebody, mm-hmm. to serve others and do it to help somebody, even for me, now that I'm thinking about all these ideas and stuff that I have, mm-hmm. I feel like an imposter when I feel like I have to show people that I know it versus teach people that I know it. Mm-hmm. When you're teaching something versus when you're showing or presenting something, it's a different mentality. Yeah. Right? That completely. I just want to humbly say, hey, here's what I've learned. I want to share this in the most concise and valuable way to, in some way, teach and educate people and yeah. help them, the ones that want to hear it, get that better. And yeah. I think when you take yourself out of the equation. Yeah and you do it in service of other people, then you feel less of an imposter, right? Yeah, and that so true. In, instead of thinking about, hey, is this idea, is, how is this idea going to make me look? Mm-hmm. Ugh, this sounds so cheesy. I'm going to sound so... It's like, no, but this might be the right thing for them. Yeah. Right? It might be this cheesy little one-line tongue-in-cheek, whatever it is that feels cheesy, but it works. Yeah, and it's, it's so funny. Like, I found a lot of people in the creative industry want to work on quote-unquote cool things. Right. Mm. Who doesn't aspire Mm. to collab with Nike and Adidas (laughs) and, you know, Louis Vuitton or Virgil Abloh, you know, like of all people. And so I think that I'm like, why, why is that? Why do people so desperately want these names associated with them? And I've realized that the, the reason why brands are doing it is because they cannot tap into an inherent value that they want in the space that they're in. So they have to quote unquote kind of like pirate someone else's cool. The point is really like there is inherent value and it's it's the work that you have to do as especially as a creative person is identify that value and see how you can surface it. This is awesome, dude. Thank you so much. See you guys later. All right. Bye everybody. Hi, well done. Great. Great stories. Thanks. <laughs> Great podcast, guys. Um, I look forward to more. Thank you for your podcast episodes for inspiring me. I hope you continue making some podcast and sharing cool ideas. Oh, by the way, you guys rock. <laughs> you know that you're inspiring someone from the Philippines. Oh my goodness, I absolutely love your podcast. This is so important to remember. It's very important to be grateful and to just love everybody. Those were just some of the kind messages you left for us, and we really don't know what to say, but thank you for your support, and we love hearing from you. If you've resonated with anything we talked about, we'd love to hear about it. Thank you for your amazing support, and we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe and healthy.